Hello, good evening, and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's program, we're revisiting some of our most loved lighthouses and some very bad news for the fishing industry, as one third of our larger boats are being decommissioned in a Brexit deal. The recent RTE TV series The Great Lighthouses of Ireland proved to be immensely popular with viewers. Over two series, the programme visited some of the most iconic lighthouses around our coasts, and now the programme maker David Hare has published an accompanying book, The Great Lighthouses of Ireland. I spoke to him earlier and congratulated him on the book. It really is a beautiful publication. Thank you very much. Um, we wanted to achieve, I mean, a lot of people commented on the series and they said it looked very good. And I think that was, you know, mainly down to the to the, the camera work of Billy Keady. And we wanted to try and recreate that sort of lavish, sumptuous feel of the series, that everything looks really beautiful. And I, I hope we've achieved that. I mean, I think there's a lot, there are lots of different elements to the book. Um, I mean, the photographs you'd expect, obviously, and we had some really, really excellent photographers uh, who very generously provided the photographs, one of whom, a man called Richard Cummins, was actually a retired Irish Lights lighthouse keeper. And after he retired, he became a professional photographer, moved to America. And we did want to, in, uh, we did want to interview him in the series, but unfortunately, it was during COVID and he couldn't travel. So we, we couldn't interview him, but at least his pictures are in the book. There are some lighthouses we can visit, others we can't because they're on islands, they're on very remote places. You have a couple of favourites yourself. Well, yes. I mean, actually, both of my favourites are ones that people can, can visit relatively easily. One is the Bull Rock, uh, just off... Um, Dursey Island of the of the tip of the Bearer Peninsula, and I and I like that one really because I can see it from my house, uh, I can see it from my office, uh, and even though the lighthouse has been replaced by a, a stainless steel pole with an LED light on the top, uh, you know I can still see the flash, and it's it's fantastic. Also, the rock itself is amazing; it's got an arch the whole way through the rock that you can take a small boat through, and actually there are people now running boat trips out to the island, so you can. You can visit the rock. You can't actually get onto the rock, but you can visit the rock and you can see the lighthouse very, very clearly. And the other lighthouse I love, I mean, there are so many, but the other one I, I, I really like is the Pool Beg Lighthouse because I think it's a fantastic colour. It's, uh, it's, it's red, red to keep it on port side. Red. Yeah, it's red, absolutely. And um, it's just, I don't know, it's rather sort of comforting and so many people will be familiar with it. Um, and maybe they don't all perhaps realise that it's actually a you know it's it's a working aid to navigation. It's not just a, a pretty object. It's a, it's a very serious, um, important aid to navigation. But it also looks good, and it looks great. It looks great in photographs. It really does. And uh, the, one, the two lighthouses at the entrance to Dublin Port. One is red. One is green. You, to keep one to port, one to, to starboard. As you're coming in, a, a warning to mariners. You mentioned the Bull Rock. It itself has a terrible history, along with the Calf Rock. Yes, I mean, the Calf Rock, um, the Bull Rock Lighthouse was built 
after the Calf Rock Lighthouse had been destroyed by the sea. And the Calf Rock Lighthouse was the only lighthouse, in fact, by, built by Irish lights to have been destroyed. And um, it was never, it was, it was built in a strange place to begin with. The man who won the contract to build it, um, a man called Henry Grissel of the Regent's uh, Canal Ironworks, I think, in London. Uh, he said to the to the um, to the Ballast Board and to Trinity House, "You're building it in the wrong place, and it's the wrong design." This is back they in the early eighteen hundreds. Yes, eighteen uh, sixties, eighteen sixties, and they obviously didn't um, appreciate uh, being told by someone they'd just given the contract to that their their decisions were wrong. But ultimately, he was proved right. Because in 1881, a big storm swept through in November, um, destroyed the lighthouse. Uh, and there were six people in the lighthouse at the time, which is unusual. Three, three lighthouse keepers and three builders who were doing repair works and, and, and sort of filling in cracks and crevices in the rock. So it had double the occupancy it would normally have had. The lighthouse was basically swept into the sea. All that remained was the cast iron s stump, the base of the lighthouse. Um, the the six men made their way across the very very small rock into some uh, buildings which were which were stores and they would have they were there for two weeks totally terrified cold wet freezing probably hungry probably running short of water and wondering as each sweat as as each wave swept over the rock and indeed would have swept over the buildings in which they were sheltering. They must have thought, is this going to be the one that takes us away? You know, we'll, we'll be swept into the sea like the lighthouse. When in fact, they were rescued after two weeks. And in, uh, an, er in, in an earlier incident, some would-be rescuers were drowned when they tried to take people off that rock. Yes, that was a terrible story. There was another bad storm and the people on shore thought that they saw the lighthouse keepers, you know, sending a distress signal. So they sent seven men out. In, in a boat to see what the problem was and maybe re rescue them. When they got to the rock, uh, the lighthouse keepers made it clear that, no, they were fine, they didn't need rescuing. So the boat turned round to, get, to head back to shore, and as it turned, it capsized, and all six men drowned. They then decided to move the lighthouse to the Bull Rock, but when they got there to build it, it was a, a bit of a story of despair because of the, the engineering feat involved. Well, they had to. The first thing they had to do was 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 hand, hand carve, if that's the right word, hand cut, I suppose, uh, steps into the rock, just in order to be able to give themselves a footing to start building. So they they cut more than three hundred steps into the rock. They then built some buildings in which to to store building materials and things. Then they went on to build a platform above that and a derrick so that they could winch the, the sort of heavier materials on. And then once they'd done that, they built the, the lighthouse and the three cottages for the keepers. And the whole thing took six years. Eventually it was lit. It's not the only island lighthouse that has a, a tragedy associated with it. When I was reading your story about the Skellig lighthouse, there were two small children buried on the Skelligs, which I didn't know about beforehand. Yes, the families lived on the Skelligs. The, the, the Skelligs lighthouse. There were two Skelligs. There were two lighthouses on the Skelligs, and they were both established in 1826. And for most of the 19th century, the families lived with the keepers in the two, you know, two two houses, two two lighthouses, 
um, two, two families. And they lived there, and they sometimes employed a teacher to look after the children. And the, there was one very unfortunate family, and two of their children uh, fell ill and died, and they're buried uh, in, the, in the little graveyard at, at the monastery at the top of the rock. And shortly after that, I think that the decision was taken that really expecting families to live in those sorts of locations was, was totally unreasonable. And so uh, lighthouse keepers' cottages were built ashore and all the families were moved. So families were living on Inish uh, Tirat, which is incredible. I mean, that's even bleaker than the Skellings. Uh, the Tusker off County Wexford, uh, Eagle Island, uh, I think Inish Trahal, lots of places um, where conditions would have been bleak and uncomfortable, to say the least. The history of the Commissioners of Irish Lights, you go into it and you have a, a lot of documentation. And you have one illustration that uh, intrigued me, 4,000 wrecks off the coast of Ireland. Yes, these are 4,000 wrecks that, that we actually know the, the, the actual physical remains have been, have been discovered. Uh, there are, there are 18,000 what are known as wrecking incidents. So these are... These are stories about wrecks that um, might have been, there might be documentary evidence for, but they actually haven't found the physical wreck on the seabed. Maybe because they'll never find it, or maybe it's just rotten and just disappeared altogether. Um, so there's a there's a there's a difference between the eighteen thousand recorded incidents of wreckings and the actual four thousand wrecks that they've actually they've actually found. Also, lightships, they came under attack a couple of times and were subject to accidents uh, during time of war. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's great that you mentioned the lightships because they often are sort of the, the, the forgotten part of the, the lighthouse story and they're incredibly important. And the conditions that the lighthouse, uh, the light, sorry, the lightship uh, men lived in were in, in many ways even tougher than the ones on the light that the lighthouse keepers lived on, even comparing to an island. At least on a rock, you can get out of your place of work and where you live and just go for a little, you know, you can stretch your legs just a little. On, on a light ship, of course, you're completely confined to your ship. And, you know, as many of your listeners will know, the, 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 the currents and the tides on the, on the Irish Sea are pretty, pretty fierce, and uh, you've got strong winds as well. And when the when the winds are coming in one direction and the tides are coming in another, and you're you've got a boat lying at anchor, it could be very very uncomfortable because you've got the pitch motion and you've got the rolling motion. So it was they were they were tough places to live, but they were also dangerous because, as you say, in the First World War and the Second World War, uh, they were attacked. Um, one ship was sunk by a, a German. There's another act of war, if you can put it that way, that I hadn't known about. An IRA, IRA raid on the Fastnet Lighthouse in June 1921. Yes, that was that's a great story, but it's not an unusual one. The, the lighthouses were, were popular um, targets for attack by the IRA because they contained uh, explosives, which were used for fog signals. Uh, gun cotton also used um, you know, to make those explosions. And also equipment like binoculars and telescopes, and so a lot of the lighthouses were were raided. Um, but I think the, maybe the authorities thought that the fastnet was was um, not at risk of attack, 
And what happened was uh, on Midsummer's night, June 1921, uh, a small boat left uh, the west coast, uh, took itself out to the rock, passed, I think, uh, a, a British Navy ship on the way out, uh, but this carried on their way. When they arrived on the island, they sort of jumped ashore, they pulled the boat up onto the rock. It was one of those very, very rare occasions where the conditions were perfect for, for landing a boat. And when they got to the when they got to the base of the light, the lighthouse door was open, and the question has never been fully answered. You know, did the lighthouse keepers know they were coming? Uh, were they sympathetic? Did they think, well, there's no point us putting up a fight, so we might as well just leave the door open? Or was the door open purely by chance because they wanted some fresh air to blow through the tower on a lovely summer's night? Nobody seems to know. But anyway, the the gang got their materials. And made their way, made their way back door. And you reprint a very colourful description of the event by Sean O'Driscoll, the officer commanding the Skull Battalion in West Cork. David, a lot of some of these lighthouses are open for visitors. You can rent them for the weekend. How do you go about doing that? Well, a lot of them are open, um, and um, there's a there's a an organisation, funnily enough, has got the, got the same name as the book in the series. It's simply called The Great Lighthouses of Ireland. And it's a scheme uh, put together by um, the different, you know, the different authorities, tourist authorities, uh, Irish lights, and local, author- you know, local groups as well. So there are some lighthouses that you can just visit. Um, and all the information is, is available on that Great Lighthouses of Ireland uh, website. Um, but also you can stay in some lighthouses. So you can stay at Fannard Head in Donegal, you can stay in Galley Head, um, you can stay in Wicklow Head. Those are just three that I can think off the top of my head. I think you can stay in um, Loop Head in County Clare. You can certainly stay in a lot of them, and it's very, very popular, and they do get booked up a long time in advance. And thanks to David Hare. His book, which accompanied the TV series, is called The Great Lighthouses of Ireland. It's just been published by Gill Publications and it retails for about 30 euros or less. There was some very bad news for the Irish fishing industry last week when it emerged that one-third of all our larger fishing trawlers have applied for a decommissioning or scrappage scheme. The scheme has been put forward by the government in the wake of cuts to the Irish fishing quota which followed Brexit. Patrick Murphy is CEO of the Irish South and West Fish Producers Organisation in Castletown Bear. I spoke to him earlier and he told me how many ships were facing decommissioning. 64. um, The nightmare that we were predicting, Fergal, has come to reality. And it it was bound to be because we don't have enough fish... uh, for Ireland to make sure that these guys have enough to catch to pay for the expenses never mind to make profits and they're at a stage now that uh, the jeopardy of catching illegal fish which is just fishing means that they can be arrested they can face huge massive fines There's then there's no money for the crews and the crews will leave and when the crews leave then you have a boat worth maybe a couple of million and you can't use it. So these people feel they have no choice but to take decommissioning. We're talking yeah. about over 60 boats out of what? How many How many hundred? Yeah, 100. Fergal, it's 64 boats uh, from the register that has 180 on it in the category size. 
uh, that are being decommissioned. So, so over 15 metres. And that's one third of the fleet. There. Yes, and, and we were in the Oireachtas, Fergal, um, in front of the Joint Oireachtas Committee on uh, Agriculture, Food and the Marine before the Minister goes out on his trip to um, see what fish we can get from the December Councils. And I showed in our presentation a diagram where there was 330 of these boats in 2006. So that's less than 20 years ago. We had 330. And after this... Um, if the 64 boats go, we'll have just around 120. Where are these 64 boats coming from? Well, most of them are, are from Castleton Bear, sadly. Um, 19 of the 64 um, are from Castleton Bear, so that's going to be devastation for us. But all around the coastline, again, we're, you see, we saw little boats in the fleet. This will mean in some areas now there won't be fishing anymore, like I predicted. Um, areas around Baltimore and Skull are going to be devastated now because there's so little there to begin with. After the last decommissionings, this could be the final death nail for those communities to see larger fishing boats. You will always see smaller boats now. Um, there'll always be somebody, some activity. But for the larger boats, for people to go down and see if they can get a bit of fish from the boats, that'll that'll disappear. And this yeah. was a scheme which was introduced after the Brexit negotiations. Yeah, so to clarify a couple of things on that, Fergal, the Minister keeps saying that the industry was 100% behind it. At the Oireachtas Committee, again, that was shown that wasn't the truth. Um, he, we felt we had to do something. That's why we asked for the task force. There was two solutions put in front of us that would solve this. this one was get more fish and number two then was decommissioning as i said the pie was after shrinking so the people sharing that pie had to shrink as well there wasn't enough for everybody i asked my members and my committee and my directors do we agree with it and they said no and uh, the reason why they said no is because we looked at the terms and conditions and they were outrageous and they still are outrageous so we couldn't support a scheme like that Okay, so we're effectively talking about a redundancy scheme for these ships. Where had they been fishing and what were they catching? All manner of fish. We lost an awful lot of fish, Fergal. Like We lost 25% of the fish we were catching. We'll see that the department will say, no, no, you lost 15. But they're not taking into consideration that the, that, that 15% was of, uh, say, 70% of the fish we were catching. But we were catching all this fish that we gave away because they took away stocks that we really, really needed, you know, that we gave to the UK. So we really got hammered here. These boats fish prawns, nephraps, um, another word for them, uh, monk, hake, whiting, haddock, uh, mackerel was huge, you know, but we got really hammered in these stocks, key stocks that were the bread and butter for our fleet. And once they're gone, then the bread and butter is gone. You're, you're talking about crumbs. Where are these ships going to go? Will they, will they be sold? Unfortunately, we, we they're going to be scrapped. They're not even going to be recycled. Look, we, you've seen, you were there, Fergal, you've seen the flotilla of boats that went up to Cork and Dublin. Sure. And and those boats are the boats that are being decommissioned. Like These boats are fantastic boats. They go anywhere in the world for fish, and they're, they're told they have to scrap them. And nothing that they did, they did nothing wrong. All they've been told is, listen, we, we had to give away your livelihoods. Here go, you have to leave the industry. And it's a, it's a sad indictment. But, Virgil, the, the worst part of this story is this. We fought to get money from Brussels to help us after Brexit of what we lost. Mm -hmm. Our government isn't giving enough to meet the 
plan and the project that they said, and I'm going to explain this very quickly so that I don't get lost stuff here. 8,000 GTs is the target for our government to, to take out, to stop fishing. Okay, what's a GT? So a GT is a gross tonnage. So every boat has gross tonnage. It's, it's a way of measuring the boat, how heavy it weighs. And that is one of the measurements of the boat then to say how big it is. So gross tonnage. So that was the easiest way for the minister and for our government to pick one valuation on the boat um, to make it easier to decide how much money the boat was worth. We explained to the minister that these boats were worth fourteen to 17000 per GT because we showed how many boats were bought before the decommissioning or the Brexit negotiations. And we could show evidence of all the boats that were being bought. That was the value of them. But even at the 12,000 GT value at 8,000 tonnes, that, that means it will cost $96 million to decommission the boats that they're out to decommission. Yet the minister has only set aside 63 million. That's a shortfall before we begin of 33 million. And we keep asking, how are you going to make this balance up? Are you just going to give the fishermen less? So that's what I'm afraid of. So all the time, Fergal, and I'm talking to you, I'm like at the Oracle. I seem to be getting it right. And I'm predicting now that we're going to have a problem and that fishermen will be offered far, far uh, values, far, far lower than the boats are actually worth. But because the gun is to their head, a lot of them will take it. What's going to happen to communities that lose these fishing trawlers? Well, in Castletown there, we asked for BIM to update their data on the fishing industry around Castletown Bear a few years ago because we need this data in Europe like to fight for more and to keep the fish that we have. And it's very important data. So BIM came down, their um, section in that organisation, and they told me that it was 85% of the economic activity generated in the Bearer Peninsula okay. came from fishing. 85%. So, like, we're losing a third of the boats. We believe there's around 60 boats fishing from Castletown Bear. So you're taking 19 out of that. You know? That's a third, like. So what's going to happen to the community? You see, they won't see it until it happens, Fergal. Will the remaining trawlers be able to catch what we have in quota? You see, you'll hear that from the minister. That, of course, you know, we, we don't have enough fish to catch um, uh, with the fleet that we have already. So our fleet stays tied up. If you come down to Castletown Bear during the summer and different times, you'll see boats just tied up. You know, they take a month out every year. They take their time now to um, get their boats done up to meet the code of practice. Whereas before, there was a queue and they'd be nearly fighting to get into the boatyard. Now the boatyard is empty. And I've spoken to the boatyard owner and we're trying different things in Castellon Bear to try and replace before even the government is doing it to try and get um, training for other marine areas. We had a meeting um, in our offices the other day with the with the local um, education um, people like you know that train people in and BIM their training unit to see if we can replace what's coming you know and, and to maybe get young people or, or fishermen retrained into other areas, but get them properly accredited so that they'll have paperwork to go and get these new jobs, you know? Even with all this bad news, though, there was some good news down your part of the world recently with the launch of a new vessel. Yeah, you see, this is, this is, that's not the only one, really. There's, there's uh, six new vessels coming into our, our 
Luther organization and they know they'd made this decision to be honest before Brexit um, but they they had to follow through with it so they got finance and everything else now they're going to struggle with the quotas that they've lost but they're um, a fishing family that, that refused to say no Sheehy family yeah they're involved in the fishing industry since I was a lad and um I I I I got the honour of, of of speaking at 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 the launch of the boat, you know, and the and the christening and the naming of the boat and the blessing of the boat, and um, it was then that we were able to start telling about this family that they're fishing for years. And Anthony Sheehy, who's a man, not not a young man anymore, he mightn't uh, agree with me, but he isn't, and yet he has the foresight to be able to create um, an industry for his younger children. Um, Jared and Ronan and uh, they're involved in, in the industry, Jared fishes the boat and they see they have no choice the vessel that they had was too old it was costing too much to keep it uh, repaired and to keep going like they just came back from Norway um, recently on a fishing expedition, you know, so they need vessels that are safe for their crews to operate on but the likes of them keep the likes on in coastal communities and villages like Baltimore. You see how important fishing uh, it still is below there, but it's disappearing. Like, you know, there was 30-something boats there when I was a youngster. It might be down to three or four now, but those three or four are critically important to keep fishing going in that area, you know? Patrick Murphy of the South and West Fish Producers Organisation in Castledown Bear. We'll keep you up to date on developments in this story. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme's podcast is on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.